Hello, and welcome back to the Go Off Sis podcast. We are celebrating HBCUs and homecoming this season. And even though we rarely ever made it to the games in college, we wanted to do it a little differently this time around and stick to sports today. At a time when sports teams and players are standing up and speaking out, the conversation around what happens at the game is changing. So let's get into it. I want to start off, of course, we introduce ourselves like we always do, but I want to shake it up and talk about what our stadium walk-up music would be, okay? I know you've mm. all thought about it before. <laughs> I know you've about, like, what song would you walk into? Like, what's your, like, on the court, whatever, on the field? Like, what is your song? So... I will go ahead and start off, okay? My name is Danielle Cadet. I am the managing editor of Refinery29 Unbothered. And my walk-in song is Sea Murder, Down for My Ninjas, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And y'all, don't tell me that song doesn't get you hyped. Okay, it don't, has. Tell, me, it don't has. tell me that song doesn't make you feel like you can do anything. You can run for president, you can rob a bank, you can do you can run a marathon, free Corey Miller. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is my song. Okay. <laughs> All right. Kathleen Newman Bermang is back with us. Hello, sister. Hello. I am Kathleen Newman-Bramang, the senior writer at Refinery29 Canada, Toronto, what up? And I'm going to take us back to 1996, the Ooh. Space Jam soundtrack Come banger. Okay. <laughs> Hit them high, the Monstars anthem, Coolio, Buster Rhymes, Method Man, Be Real, LL Cool J. Come on. Phenomenal. This is a phenomenal pick. This Come is a phenomenal fantastic. <laughs> this is... This is such a heavy hitter, but it was hit like... Hit him high, hit him low. Right. Him low. <laughs> this is an unexpected <laughs> hit, hit, but this was a good one. Monstars <laughs> and the... Yes. <laughs> Our sister, Chelsea Sanders. Welcome back, sis. It re- introduce yourself and tell us your walk-up music. Hello. All right. I'm Chelsea Sanders. I'm the VP of Communications at Refinery29. And my entrance music is probably... Um, I'm just going to go classic 2005. Remember where you were, T.I. Bring them out. Bring them out. Bring them yes. out. Bring them out. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to yell when the morale's in your mouth. This, this is, this is yes. Like literal. Go literal with it. Yes. 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 Literal. It's, and again, I, in 2005, I went to an all-girls school and was doing like A&TM walk-offs to this song. So. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, also like when that beat drops, there's like nothing like, I mean, right. yeah, when that beat drops and then when T.I. T.I. It all just works. <laughs> Three good choices. Now we need to make a playlist. <laughs> now that we've got ourselves hype with our walk-in music, let's 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 really get into let's talk about sports in college and let's talk about sports outside of college. There's so much to talk about here in terms of like, you know, how sports operates and how you operate as an athlete on campus. And then how sports, you know, the role that sports plays in our culture, particularly in Black culture, particularly right now in the moment that we're experiencing when we're looking at leagues across the board that are largely 
comprised of black and brown players. So there's so much, and you know, both in college and out of college, right? Mm-hmm. Chelsea, I want to start with you because you were an athlete in college. Mm-hmm. And that informed a lot of your experience that you've already told us so much about your lovely experience <laughs> at Yale with the white people. So lovingly <laughs> told and experienced, yes. So tell us about being an athlete at Yale. Yeah, and I should probably clarify. I was I was an athlete for part of, of my college <laughs> experience. Again, as is fully on brand. I complete nothing. So <laughs> you have me while you you have me. You're welcome. <laughs> so so just so, for some background, I'm six one. So if I didn't play a sport, I would be a complete waste of height. So I played volleyball for about twelve years, all of sort of junior high, high school, and I walked on to my freshman volleyball team at Yale. I was getting up every day at 5 a.m. and doing two-a-day workouts, traveling, being tired, and not sort of like getting any return on that investment, let's say. But I think one of the things that you learn in college and in sports is that it gives you an automatic group, right? And it gives you an automatic team, and it gives you the opportunity to hang out with people who understand what you're going through on a regular basis. Because when you're a student athlete, that's a very specific and can be a really lonely thing outside of your team. But I think it also just made me realize how much of this stuff that I was doing for other people and realizing that, especially at an institution like Yale, where alumni funds are huge, mm-hmm. and I was not seeing any of that. I'm playing for free 99 mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. to go to school and trying to be sociable and then trying mm-hmm. to just be black in sports at Yale was was a lot and it was too much mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped playing on the varsity level and I played club, which is, you know, a tear down for my the rest of my time at Yale because I genuinely love volleyball and I still do. But playing at that level, I quickly, again, realized who I was playing for was not myself and that all the good things that came from it, which was that team mentality and the energy and, again, like looking great, it was not worth the investment of being a student athlete for me, at least. I want to touch on, on, you said so much, I want to touch on two things. The first thing I want to touch on is Chelsea six one. So where the tall guys at? Come holler at truly, us. truly <laughs> number one. Yeah. As your as your resident matchmaker. <laughs> number two was you saying that you weren't playing for yourself. I mean, I I really I do not think it is an overstatement to say that college sports is slavery. I mean, you have these group of elite athletes that are driving major mm-hmm. revenue for sports programs. You know, whether that's Yale or like Northwestern where I went, which is a member of the Big Ten, you know, or even these SEC programs. I mean, these are major programs that generate millions of dollars. And these athletes are not seeing any of that money and are not allowed to make any money for themselves. Mm-hmm. Chels hit on it where, you know, she's talking about how you're waking up at 5 a.m., how you're trying to juggle studies. And like, for those of us who went to college or university, we know how hard it is when you don't have an extracurricular. And these athletes are playing at the highest level. They're traveling around. There's all of this pressure on them to win, but also to financially support their institutions. Yes. There is not time for them to get the same education. And a lot of them didn't get into these schools because of their academic prowess. So they don't have the capacity to finish these classes and they don't make them. And so they don't. And so they're not getting the education. And so for those athletes 
who leave college or university and don't go pro, what are they left with? Right, right, right. And that is the biggest question. The university is left with millions and these athletes are left with nothing. I think to a certain extent, athletes were kind of like looked down on academically. Like at least at mm-hmm. Northwestern, it was very much like, yeah. oh, like you're here because you're playing football, which like, again, isn't always the case. So then there's the social hierarchy part of it, right? Mm-hmm. But in certain, I think in HBCUs and in certain other universities, athletes kind of come second to like Greek life or like, you know, mm-hmm. like it's almost cooler if you're a member of a Greek letter organization than it is if you're an athlete. So I wonder... Or a marching band. Right, or a marching band. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, how did that operate at Yale, Chelsea, in terms of just like socially, where did the athletes fall? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have sports scholarships at Yale. So everyone who was at Yale was there to study first and foremost, theoretically. And all these people who are playing football, basketball, whatever, like, do not lie. You were in the library. You were not out in these, you know what I mean? You were not out in these right. streets, like falling, like you're actually going to be a professional athlete. Maybe one or two, like if you're a Jeremy Lin who went to Princeton and somehow made it, but that is the exception to the rule. For the most part, mm. you're a goober and you're a nerd. So sit down. And goober. I think, <laughs> yeah. But I think that it did, it stratifies you, right? And it isolates you in whether that's positive or negative in a way that like, okay, we know that this sports team was definitely in this organization, right? They're in this frat or this sorority. And I think even more so that like stratification came when it came to like women's sports because Mm. women's sports were not even on the radar, like at all. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to who's getting taken advantage of, Mm. though it is the athletes who like, when you look at basketball, who come out early, Mm-hmm. Because mm. they are using that sport as a means to an end, as yeah. a way to support themselves and their families. And right. so they use academics at school as a stepping stone to the next Right, thing. right, right. Absolutely. But Kathleen, you made a point that I really want to talk about is the band and bands mm-hmm. as a form of athleticism. You know, I don't know if we think or if we talk enough about how much athletic ability is required in order to be a part of the marching band. And I'm talking about marching band at black schools. Like Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. have gone to some of these battle of the band performances and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like (laughs) you are in great shape. You are carrying an instrument. You are stay, you are in lockstep on rhythm. Okay. Mm -hmm, Looking mm -hmm. good. These majorettes got banging bodies. You know what I mean? And I'm not, and when I say banging body, I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not talking about like quintessential banging bodies. Shout out to the honeybees at Alabama State who are these beautiful curvy women, the beautiful curvy dance troupe that I think just promotes so much body positivity. You have these marching bands. You have, I mean, I don't, I would not be able to hold a tuba for more than five seconds. Okay. So ain't no way. Yeah, can playing, I pick up a tuba? Okay. I don't even think I could pick it up. <laughs> ain't no way I'm playing music. I'm dancing. I'm twerking. <laughs> I'm thrusting and I'm on beat by like, I mean, <laughs> there's just so much athleticism that comes with that. And I don't think we talk about that enough. 
Yeah, my biggest reference for marching bands is Drumline. Come on, Drumline. And of course, Beyonce's Homecoming, uh, cinematic masterpiece, Homecoming. And like, yeah, you can't tell me those aren't athletes. Right. Like, I love college basketball, and I have never been more entertained than watching those marching bands who are at like their highest level like, can I get a band jersey? Because I would right. like to stand. Yes. I would like, I also want to know, you know, if some of those same issues that plague athletes are there mm. for band members, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the practicing and the time that it takes to devote yourself to that. Yes. I don't know, because there's also no going pro when it comes to bands right. after right. the fact, right? So great point. That's really that's really interesting yeah. to me. I, I don't know how that works. But as a fan, I'm here. I'm here for it. Yeah. I think also in the HBCU framework, that's why you see people pledge bands, right? Like that's mm. why you see there's a whole pledging structure around bands in and of themselves because again, it's its own sort of social stratosphere in its own way. And you know, when they went behind the scenes for B's homecoming, I mean you have these college students who are actually members of bands from different, you know, from respective universities who are practicing day and night, who are working hard and displaying incredible showmanship, you know, and in the HBCU framework, ain't nobody there for the game. People are there for the band. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. this, I mean, also if we talk about, again, going back to driving revenue, there's also an aspect here where like your band is the one that's driving revenue and bringing eyeballs and driving publicity, you know, especially now with YouTube and everything. Some of these band shows and some of the songs they play and those videos go viral. You know what I mean? Yes. Those things bring a lot of attention to the university, you know, so to a certain extent, like particularly from the HBCU framework, they're just as important, I think, if not more important than the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to see a band out here doing a remix of WAP. I know it's coming. <laughs> it's definitely like laugh now, cry later. Like, I feel like there's going to be just a whole- I'm going to do like, a deep dive on TikTok there. after this. I'm sure yes. it's out there. Yeah. Dog, just wait on it. I cannot, like I am <laughs> waiting on the moment when I can text Chelsea when I see that video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other thing I want to talk about with HBCUs is like the athletic program, right? We talked about the mm-hmm. little bit this a little bit on our HBCU versus PWI episode. But this idea that- you know, you're maybe there, you're not going to go pro as easily, right? Like, of course you think about like the University of Florida's, the Alabama's, the Auburn's, you think about these schools, the Ohio States, you think about these schools where swarms and swarms of athletes have come from these schools, but there are HBCU players that are elite athletes. And I think that we oftentimes skirt over that conversation that there's there's elite athleticism happening on HBCU campuses. And that's across the board, women's and men's sports, from football to basketball to baseball. Okay, shout out to A&T. A&T actually is a phenomenal baseball team. To golf, they're really great golfers at HBCUs. And I don't think that we often give enough shine to HBCU athletes. Yeah, no, and I think what we're seeing is sort of this like shift or at least more of a focus on what does it mean to play sports at an HBCU, right? Mm-hmm. And I think being Black in sports makes you a lightning rod in a lot of ways, whether that's, mm-hmm. again, positive right. or negative. But people are looking at you when you play sports. Right. So what does it look like when the people who are looking at you look like you, right? Mm-hmm. What, how does that change the game and the dynamic? Because I think we're seeing that with a couple of things like, recruits are coming now to HBCUs and considering that. And now 
other talent who graduated are coming back. Like Deion Sanders, who is literally a football legend yesterday, Mm -hmm. literally just announced that he's going to become the coach of Jackson State. Yes. The football Mm -hmm. coach to again, realize his dream of like giving back to the community in a way that feels more productive than maybe becoming the coach at a PWI and draining the resources that he could just say, hey, like, come here. I'll do this right with you and we'll win. Right. Right. So what does it look like when you can have that space to be yourself, to see yourself and win like that? That honestly is a lot of power. So I think that's something that we need to lean into more. And I think that's something we're probably going to be seeing more and we should be. Kerr Maker decided to go to Howard. There was so much excitement around that, but there was also simultaneous confusion, right? Like, why mm-hmm. wouldn't he go to mm-hmm. UNC, right? Why wouldn't he go to Chapel Hill? And it's like, I think we're now at a point where we're thinking about who are we making money for and who are we generating income for, mm-hmm. you know, through our own talents, right? Like, this is our God given talent, our God given ability, and we're taking it to white schools and making money for white schools. Why? Why are we making money for the white man? But I also think it's dismantling the whole system a Mm. little bit, right? Because these schools are just a pipeline for Mm. for the pros. And so if they're not getting recruited out of HBCUs, which is what we've seen historically, then that's why these players aren't going there because they feel like their best opportunity is at a PWI. Mm, mm, yeah. And I mean, as far, yeah, as far as the making money, who you're going to make money for, it's like, who's also going to get you the most money. Right, right. right. Absolutely. And that's, right. and that's, again, going back to what we talked about in episode one was how we thought about how we made our college decision was like a lot of that was like, mm-hmm. oh, I went to Northwestern because it's the best journalism school. Mm-hmm. But why didn't I think of going to Hampton? Why didn't mm-hmm. I go to A&T? I know great journalists that went to HBCUs. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think we have to ask ourselves, like, are we assuming that we can only get the best access and resources from PWIs or can we put ourselves on, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. again, it's our God-given talent. These are kids, these kids are in high school already causing a stir, okay? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the decision that they make to go to schools like a Howard or a Hampton, then you're like, oh, you're now catapulting our names and our schools and our legacy and a whole, now we're on the sports centers, right? Now we're on Mm -hmm. college game day. Now we're Mm -hmm. having a whole different conversation about our schools. I want to, I want to lean into what you just said, Kathleen, about the, the, the college, the pro pipeline. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, there's so much to talk about with professional sports. The first thing I want to talk about is this moment of activism right now, you know, where race culture and sports intersect, particularly in this moment. And, you know, you've got athletes playing in the bubble as we speak, who are witnessing what's going on in the world and, and, you know, what's happening to Black people in this, in this racial reckoning. I know all three of us feel really passionately about shouting out the WNBA, mm-hmm. who has been about this life for a really long time, the, the league and players have been speaking out about police brutality, have been speaking out about Black Lives Matter for quite some time. And I just want to spend some time chatting about that because I know all three of us feel really passionately about that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at someone like Maya Moore, who took a sabbatical so that she could fight for the release of a wrongfully convicted Black man, 
you know, that didn't really make who waves. She's, and, who she's in, married to. Yeah, who she's yeah. not married to. <laughs> Shout out to Maya Moore. But that, I feel like, should have been the biggest story in the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Imagine Way if LeBron, LeBron it was. Right. Imagine right. it was LeBron. 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 Yes, right. Now, LeBron had done something like that. And no shade to LeBron. LeBron is an incredible activist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's done incredible things. He started a school mm-hmm. in his hometown. He's done really incredible work. But... LeBron literally sneezes and it makes news, okay? Mm -hmm. So Maya Moore doing something like that, that's, you're right. That's incredible. And and we don't talk about it enough at all. And and I think it's one of those things, again, where we are, Black women are constantly at the center of these things, really like the rallying cry, but somehow are are not part of the conversation when it comes to the front. And I think when we're thinking about the way that sports is being transformed today, it's women at the front. It is these Maya Moors. It is the Naomi Osaka's. It is the folks who are being loud and proud about it openly because they're just about this life. Yes. And I want to say to that, because one of my best friends is the first black woman to anchor a sports broadcast here in Canada. And she, Mm -hmm. yeah, shout out Kayla Gray. She has been, especially this past NBA season with the Toronto Raptors, she has been in press conferences asking these young black men who shouldn't have to talk about their lives and police brutality after a game. Yes. yes. But at the same time, they want to. Absolutely. And so she's been the one asking these questions. And, you know, if another one of her white colleagues asks something ignorant, she's in there asking the follow-up and protecting these players because she's the only Black woman there to do that. Yes. And it's yes. been, I think it's been exhausting for her, but also she knows that that's her responsibility. Yeah, I love that yeah. you touch on that because I think, you know, I, I got to admit, I had really mixed feelings about the return of sports in the midst of the mm-hmm. pandemic. I felt like mm-hmm. it felt very frivolous. It's like people are still dying. We're sending the wrong message. We're putting a lot of money into making sure these athletes and crews get tested every single day or however frequently, but folks on the street can't get adequate health care. You know what I'm saying? And so that mm-hmm. was really hard. I think for me to come to terms with, but I also understand the fact that for a lot of these athletes, that was the only way they would come back, right? Is if it said Black Lives Matter on the court, if they, mm-hmm. you know, were able to wear jerseys that said that, you know, that gave messages that they felt were really strong. Again, shout out to the WNBA who has been doing this for a long time. And mm-hmm. the NBA certainly did follow suit. And that is phenomenal to see. But I don't want to lose the fact that. You know, like we all said, women have been in there. Shout out to to your point, Chelsea, Naomi Osaka, who played all seven of her matches in the U.S. Open, displaying different names of Black people who were murdered either by the police or by white vigilantes. Yeah, and it's largely white audience. Again, when we're talking about who's making the money and what these sports teams look like and who they're broadcasting to, a lot of these fans are, you know, young white men, number one. Um, and a lot of them who are who are going to be deciding a lot of things as they grow up too, and under trying to understand what this new sports culture looks like. Right. And I'm hopeful that then they will metabolize this and 
recognize that this is all part of it. You cannot separate yes. sports from culture. Yes. You cannot yeah, yes. separate it from our blackness. All of those things are part of the package. Yes. And like, there's no going back, especially now. And I think yes. that is what is for me encouraging too. So. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to circle back again on that. Who are we making money for? Right. Mm-hmm. Because we, we've got to think about this because I, one thing that I've found incredibly interesting as a person who worked for four years in sports is the shift that the leagues have taken now Mm. because you're Mm. seeing the league support the player's message in a way that you never would have seen years ago when Colin Kaepernick first, you know, (laughs) took a knee. Like, look at what they did to Colin. Absolutely. Mm -hmm villainized him and pushed him out mm-hmm. of the league. And now you're seeing, I mean, I will watch, you know, games with my husband on the weekend. Shout out to the Ravens. He is a very big Ravens fan. Shout out to mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson. What up? The big trust. I think I said <laughs> that right. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll be watching a game with him and you're now seeing like, you know, the way that the announcers are talking about like the noble mm-hmm. message that these athletes are standing for and unity and blah, blah, blah. And before it was like, oh, none of y'all were trying to hear that. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's be mm-hmm. real. Let's really break it down. There are no black owners, team owners in the NFL. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Jordan is the only majority black majority owner in the NBA. We mm-hmm. are not seeing representation. We might be seeing representation on the quarter on the field, but we're certainly not seeing it as as far as ownership and who's making money off of these things. Because if we're the other reason why we had to make a bubble, right? Why we had to go back to playing sports is because there was money on the table. People were going to lose money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it also is, it's a little complicated when you think about who are we making money for? Sort of in the same way we talked about from a college perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And even just hearing you say that, Danielle, I think of Masai Ujiri, who Mm -hmm. is not an owner of the Toronto Raptors, but he's representing behind the scenes as a general manager. Yes. I believe is his title. One of of the only Black GMs in the league. Yes. And, you know, we just saw him. Yes. It all just came out that the night the Raptors won the championship. Yes. was a thing over his credentials. He was wearing motherfucking credentials. Yes. Yes. And And was manhandled. Was manhandled. Yes. A security guard basically attacked him. And it was just one of those things where he's still a black man. He may be one of the few GMs in the NBA. And he still got treated like black men do in America. Right. And it's just was like the perfect. And then even how it all played out after the fact and how he got sued and it became this just like horrific example of what black men go through. It also became an example of of sports and how people view you, even if you are putting your life, your money, your intellect on the line for entertainment. I mean, if we're being honest, sports have always played a huge role in activism going way mm-hmm. back. Jackie Robinson, Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Sports have always been a, a major part of activism and have been on a major stage when it comes to access to the world. The other thing, too, is the culture. OK, because black culture is popular culture. If you think about now who's setting the cultural agenda, they're mm-hmm. oftentimes athletes. You know, yeah. people do things because Kobe did it, because LeBron's done it, because MJ did it. 
we are setting the cultural agenda. We have always set the cultural agenda and sports have always played a major role in activism. And again, I do think that the women that are really leading the way here, I got chills when Naomi Osaka was asked about the mask that she wore throughout the U.S. Open. And she said, what message did you get? You know, I think we all mm. so often, mm. a lot of times white reporters ask these black athletes to answer the questions for them. But we've got right. to put mm-hmm. the question back. Back on. Say, well, yeah. What did you get? What did you yeah. get from watching this? What do you get from seeing Black Lives Matter on this, on this, on the court? What do you get from seeing, you know, how many more on Damian Lillard's jersey and his number is zero? Okay, that's a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've really got to appreciate the role that sports plays in our ongoing social conversation. We have reached my very favorite segment of the show, the Don't At Me segment. And you should know that Don't At Me is our way of tying a bow on our conversation and summarizing all of our thoughts. The catch is you cannot at us, no matter what we said to the white folks. <laughs> like our cousin Nini says, I said what I said. And today's Don't At Me is courtesy of our good sister, Kathleen newman Bermang. Take it away, Kathleen. Okay. Now, I am not a pro athlete. Nowhere near it. But growing up, I played ball and ran track and sports were a refuge. Watching sports, especially college basketball with my family, was a bomb and a bright spot in my childhood. For all the little black kids who took refuge in playing their sport and turned it into a profession, they deserve more. They deserve better. They deserve institutions that respect them enough to compensate them for their work, for the fact that they put their educations and their bodies on the line for a college to make billions off their backs. They deserve to see the financial fruits of white coaches and organizations getting rich off their names, their images, their likenesses. Yes, even the woman, especially the woman. Because when it comes to athletes and activism, like always, black women are on the front lines. Black women, like Chene Agoimike, like Naomi Osaka, when Naomi Osaka makes her sport, one of the whitest sports, stand still so she can say, watching the continued genocide of Black people at the hand of police is making me sick to my stomach and have the world listen to her. She's doing that not for our entertainment, but for her life and for our lives. When Maya Moore takes a sabbatical from her beloved sport to get a wrongfully convicted Black man freed, it shouldn't take a basketball dream deferred or a romantic happy ending for this to make headlines. I want these athletes, from their formative years in college to ESPN broadcasts or beyond, these athletes who bring me so much joy and entertainment to feel as free as we do when we watch them play. Because these athletes aren't activists by nature or even by choice. They are Black. And right now, being Black comes with many blessings, but also with the burden of attempting to get the world to see our humanity. Some of these men and women may seem superhuman, but as the saying goes, just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. All we're asking is that they are treated like human beings, not balls bouncing on a court, because their fight is not just on the field, and they need protection and support on and off of it. Don't at me.
Season three of the Go Off Sis podcast was made possible by Target, our home for style this HBCU homecoming season. Whether you're an HBCU student, fan, auntie, or alum, Target is here to elevate your creativity and hype your personal style this fall. As we continue to celebrate our sisterhood and the joy of our legacy building reunions, Target gives us the power to showcase our individuality and embrace our communities with pride right on time. Whether we're on the yard or gathering virtually this fall, we are still going to be serving looks. Head over to Target.com or the Target app to check out all their style options and take your celebrations to the next level. So today we have a very special guest on the Go Off Sis podcast. Chenea Gwumake is a WNBA All-Star player for the Los Angeles Sparks, a regular sports commentator, and a graduate of Stanford University, where she set records as the all-time career scoring leader for both men and women's basketball. Okay? Both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> In addition to starting her own Black Girl Magic basketball dynasty alongside her sister and Sparks teammate, Neca, she recently became the first Black woman to host a national radio show for ESPN while she takes this 2020 season off, becoming the first WNBA player to do so. Okay. Check those credits. So let's get into it. Look, I've been waiting for a time to go off, you know, okay. not doing hey. a nine to five. Otherwise, you know? yes. Okay, well, this is it. You came to the right place. So let's go off. <laughs> so let's just jump right in. Like I said, you and your older sister have been breaking boundaries for years since your time at Stanford. And this season is actually all about HBCUs. And we're talking about the experience of being Black at an HBCU or at a PWI. As I've shared earlier, I also went to PWI. But I think for you, you were also at Stanford really breaking boundaries and breaking the rules. You became the first siblings to go number one in the draft pick overall since the Manning brothers, right? In the NFL and are now (laughs) on the Sparks making history as as Black women. Can you talk about sort of your family and how your upbringing has prepared you for this moment and for for all the things that you've, you've done since your time at Stanford? You know, it's funny, the more I have sort of transitioned to doing more broadcast work, the more I'm starting to realize, like, people are introducing me and I'm like, wait, what? Like, because I'm number two. I'm two out of four. I have three sisters. You guys mentioned my big sis, Neca, president of the WMBPA. Your girl here is vice president. We keep it in the yes. family. <laughs> um, <laughs> Love having, that. Having two younger sisters as well that play basketball, but now like they're doing their own things. One's in medical school, one's in business school. And so for me, I'm like the broadcaster, right? And so going on and having the mic has been so great. But um, even the path getting there, I'm starting to realize like the biggest challenge I've had is finding my voice, meaning like Mm. being confident in it. It's like, I know I can talk, but it's being confident in what I'm saying. And so a lot of times people like announce their credentials and I've started realizing like my credentials are real. Like I don't have to second guess myself because I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, I'm black, you know, I'm diverse. My parents born and raised in Nigeria, you know, like people are still trying to figure out how to say my name, but my credentials stand, you know, for themselves. My sisters and I are the first generation born and raised in the States. We're born and raised in Houston, but we go back home to Nigeria every year, very connected. 
And, you know, if you know anything about African culture, you know, it's still very patriarchal. And so mm-hmm. for my, for my dad to have four girls, he constantly is questioned like, don't you want a son? Like, aren't you going for a son? You know? And my dad's like, my dad's like, my four girls will beat your son each and every day. <laughs> so I, I say all of this just to say that, like, I had people from the get-go, from the womb, my sisters included, that gave me confidence. Like, especially my dad never questioning what a, what a young girl can do, what a girl can do. It's funny because I could feel that. Like when Chelsea was reading off your credentials and we do this a lot and people kind of squirm or they like shrink a little. And you were like, (laughs) no, that's me. (laughs) Look, I've had to like give myself a pep talk. Like, yes, yes, I did that. Yes, sis. Yes, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I think one of the things that we were talking about even earlier this season is these different ideals. You mentioned that you're first gen and the distinction between, as you said, coming from African parents who might have had a more traditional patriarchal structure and then growing up in Houston and in America. And then, as we said, going to Stanford, which is very different than Houston and Nigeria. Can you talk about some of that process of sort of marrying those two worlds and, and living in both of them? Yeah. So I think, you know, the crazy part is as women, as black women, we have to sort of hold our emotions back and assess because we have to be stronger. We have to see through the BS. We have to maneuver and manipulate because nothing will be handed to us. And so like with my unique background, being that my parents born and raised in Nigeria, they came from very, you know, well, well well-to-do families, but like in different regards, like my dad was more, I get, we're from like the Igbo side. I'm Igbo. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. My mom had more of a city upbringing. My dad had more of like, you know, like a rural type of upbringing, but both from really well-respected families. They come to the States. They're here for education and then they fall in love with each other. They thought they were going to go back to Nigeria, but life happens and they move. My dad gets a job in Houston, Texas. And then he, you know, my mom pops out four girls and then we're here, but we're still well-connected to back home in Nigeria. Having that perspective has helped us because I think naturally we're taught to be grateful because the things that we're experiencing, like sports, is not something that most girls would probably experience the same way back home or even see the support. Like if you want to play sports in PE or, you know, if you're fortunate to have parents that can like get you in youth sports, it's like, oh, cool. Like she plays soccer, you know, like back home. It's like, why is she doing this? That's the first thing that comes to mind. And so having that perspective has sort of made us like humble yet hungry, like seize the opportunities, Mm. you know, like I've got the African cultural upbringing, but I also am a black person in America. So it's like many different ways and lenses. And so, yeah, like it's been a whole bunch of different worlds for me, but I think by being patient with all the different parts of my identity has allowed me to see things a little bit more clear and also been able to like educate people as to like, look, like I can go to Nigerians, my Nigerian family and say, look, this is why sports matters for young girls. Like mm. having this teaches you confidence. Like we are, we are more alike than we are different. And I think there are so many different conversations that need to be had amongst our own community, the black community. And I think we're having those in real time and we're celebrating each other real time. And then you go to Stanford and now it's like trying to educate you know, and it's not even Stanford, like in Texas, at Stanford, you're trying to educate people as to my experience as a black person, you know, and experience as a Nigerian American, as an international person. So like we as black women have constantly had the burden to educate others. Mm-hmm. I think that 
being as tiring as it is to sort of like be an ambassador for like your race and your gender and all of those things, there is, as you said, some like payoff when you see that come together. Amen. I think sitting down and taking the time to have those conversations, a lot of people don't necessarily do that. So I think one of the things that we were talking about also this season, and, you know, as I said, I I went to Yale and had to deal with sort of a lot of those things and trying to be that ambassador, would it look different if we went to a school like an HBCU that was all Black, where we didn't have to, you know what I mean, perform our Blackness or step into every space and be the only one? But if you could go back, theoretically, would you consider an HBCU for your own education? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I said like a long time ago when I, (laughs) 2014, 2010, I got to Stanford. You know, the difference that we're having right now, and I think we've seen this the last few months and it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, we know it through the lens of sports and athletes is that athletes are moving towards activism, right? But it's not just activism. It's also action. And the way I sort of explain this is, you know, through our lens of basketball, when you shoot, you see Steph Curry, you see Maya Moore, all these great ones shoot. They don't just shoot and like flick their wrist. They hold it, right? They follow Mm. through. And so we've been shooting out a lot of messages for so long about causes that we care about. But more importantly, now you're seeing athletes following through and not just stopping Mm. at putting the message out there. They're trying to create this change that actually is needed now. And so I think a lot of people might be like, you always hear these things, stick to sports, all this stuff. I'm just like, this is where I say the credentials. Like, I can't Mm. second guess myself because I went to Stanford. I take my time to educate myself on issues. I know the community that, you know, I am responsible for. And that community includes my little sisters in this next generation. And if I have a platform to help them and to help us, that's the most important calling that we have. Athletes, you know, are not expected to speak up, but by nature of being the exceptions, you know, and not the norms in the spaces that we step into, it's our freaking responsibility, you know? And so like throughout this whole process, it's been really cool to see us as young people realize that change. And so like when it comes to education, I didn't even know that it'd be a possibility for me to speak out on a social justice issue in 2010, in 2014, Mm -hmm. and, you know, put pressure on the system, whether it's like my school, my coach for accountability, even in the smallest ways, like we're at that point now. So if you rewind things and now, like I always tell people like ownership matters, like what we're striving for is to be an owner of our own brands, our own communities, so that we can funnel as much good into it as we can. Like, we can't wait for, no offense, like the government or like organizations to mm. do it and just hand it to them and trust in that. Like, no. we're starting to see like support. I know. I know. I'm coming in. Yeah, like, no offense to the government. No, no, no. Like, like, yes, yes, look, 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 like, governments go is going to be there forever. And it's going to change. It's going to change with the wind. But we can't wait for whatever the changes are going to be. We got to make those changes now. And mm. so, like, I thought when I went to Stanford, I was like, oh, I got to put all my eggs into the basket of basketball. And then I ran into an amazing person by the name of Dr. Condoleezza Rice, who um, is my major. She she heads the international relations department. Huge fan of basketball. First of all, 
huge mm-hmm. fan of sports. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I ran into, well, I didn't run into her. She was like, she like, was like, Chanae, I, I need you to, you know, are you in class? Are you in class class? <laughs> <laughs> you raising your hand in class class. I was like, I don't know. You know, I had that imposter syndrome. She basically planted this, you know, once you hear it from someone besides your parents, mm-hmm. it hits different. <laughs> mm-hmm. She planted this in my head that like, hey, you can give everything you've got to both academics and athletics. And so the shift started happening in my head. And so that, you know, Stanford really expanded my horizons to like athletes are capable of more, you know? And Mm -hmm. I know we see this most recently with LeBron James and more than an athlete and his motto and his brand, which I'm also like lucky to be a part of that more than a vote coalition. I think, you know, the tides are shifting. You're seeing maker makers making their own decision Mm -hmm. to go support institutions. Like that is the way Deion Sanders most recently choosing to coach, you know, and HBCU, like these things are happening more and more and it'll give more people confidence to make those type of decisions. Cause like it comes at the expense of like, Oh, you may not get the attention. I'm like, look, it's nowadays athletes drive more of the brands and the institutions. So mm, your I've brand heard. will follow you. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Woo, that's a word. <laughs> In 2020, in the past, you know, season that we've seen activism be the forefront, I want you to speak a little bit more to that responsibility. And I think of the Black girls growing up watching basketball, which I was. Like, Lisa Leslie was like that person for me when I was growing up. And just how much of an impact you are able to have now. And, you know, you spoke to what you didn't know. And now it's like you get to be in that position to make sure that next generation knows. So can you speak to that responsibility and what it looks like to you as an athlete, as a role model in 2020? It looks like being vulnerable, honestly. Mm. Like that's been the hardest thing that I've had to do. Like the new job, you know, as a radio host, you're on, I'm on air for three hours. Like you can't hide yourself for three hours. They're going to ask you a question mm. like, Who's going like, why are the athletes protesting? And you can't just dance around it. You're going to just have to speak your truth. And you mentioned one of my greatest mentors, uh, Lisa Leslie, who uh, we have a podcast called Front and Center coming out. And she has just been, you know, it's funny, the people that have really helped me through my life, I'm starting to look, it's, it's been black women. You know, mm-hmm. like m- I have a strong black woman, shout out to pops, but like strong black woman, <laughs> you know, my mom, three amazing black women that are my sisters. I go to Stanford and my international relations major mentors, Dr. Rice. And then, you know, when I'm transitioning to the pros, I meet at Stanford, Lisa Leslie. And she had, she was the first athlete that I looked to and I was like, dang, like, I want to be her. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to be her, her. Like she was fierce, feminine and like, Fearless, you know what I mean? And so just having these women understanding my mom, Lisa, you know, Secretary Rice, like all these people, they've sort of understood that they they have to pass the playbook to the next generation, right? And that is not something easy. Like you have to be comfortable telling people, look, this is what you can do better. This is where I have failed, where you can succeed. Mm-hmm. And that takes mm-hmm. vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so being in these spaces where you're just authentically yourself. Like I always say, like, you know, your existence, you know, is the resistance. Like just being there and sharing your, your, your perspective and your point of view is enlightening others to something that they didn't know and something that they actually will find out is extremely valuable moving forward. But it's been like the hardest thing being vulnerable, like being comfortable because you know that we are so quick to like comment on what we don't like, you know, all of us, 
And it's so much easier to type out a tweet or to post a comment of something you don't like than what you support, you know? So being in a space where you know that that is what's coming, but like, I feel like we're at the point where like, shoot, I don't even care. <laughs> like, come at me, bro. Like, it's all good. And so, yeah, the scariest, it's the scariest thing being vulnerable, but at the same time, I feel like it's like the most liberating thing as well. Mm-hmm. That vulnerability sometimes though can come with missteps. And, you know, I'm thinking of the athletes when they have uh, these conversations around activism, sometimes those missteps come in, especially mm-hmm. with men. Does it frustrate you because they, you've got people being like, stick to sports, and you're like, no, I can speak to this. Like, Naomi can speak to this. LeBron can speak to this. And then you've got people making these missteps that, I don't know, speak to how, how that makes you feel. So I think one thing we're starting to realize is a lot of people group the Black community as like one brain. Mm-hmm. one thought mm-hmm. and like first we have to acknowledge that some people in the black community may not agree with everything that most people agree with and we're perfectly fine with that but if you are one of those people that don't agree you better have your points correct yeah. and also <laughs> okay yes exactly thank you and then also like, I respect it if you have your points correct, because I could say, look, that's your purview. But I also mm. know that our success, again, is the exception and not the norm. But, like, once you get to that point, there are, it, it can get confusing, you know, because when you, re, you know, you are put in a certain status, it's sometimes hard to, you know, relate to what, what you were before. But in this moment right now, like our job is to advocate for those who who don't have and like those who need the mic now. And, you know, if we don't do that, like that to me is like us infringing on our own responsibilities as a part of the black community. Like it's okay to put out like differing opinions, but also let that be rooted in fact, or at least rooted in something that makes sense so that, when the community sees it, it's not like we're canceling. It's like, oh, I can understand your perspective. Let's have a conversation about this so that, you know, we can be better for it. This is the thing. It gives the other side evidence and ammo to be justified in their personal beliefs when we're really trying to get the other side, especially as women. We're not like riding here for ourselves. Like we are a part of an entire country and it's important for us to articulate to the other side why things should not stay that way. Mm. And so when you give that evidence and ammo, you just allow people to be willfully ignorant where they can actually hear something that they can shift their hearts and minds. Like that to me is the biggest frustration. Like I'm cool with people having different opinions, but like come with your facts. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not. And like, again, I feel like everyone listening should just be writing down everything you're saying. <laughs> Okay, so we t- we've talked about the history that you've made as a Black woman in sports, you know, and you've been making this history uh, amidst the WNBA not getting the recognition it deserves. And, you know, when we talk about women's sports across the board, especially, you know, we talk soccer and who's revolutionized the game, they aren't getting their due when it comes to pay equity. So let's talk about pay equity. <laughs> what do we need to prioritize in that conversation? I think we have to prioritize creativity and investment. So like 
going through the CBA process, which is the collective bargaining agreement that governs the way the WNBA players are treated, everything from our experience to our paychecks. We just negotiated that in January. And a lot of people called that such a groundbreaking achievement, right? And Mm -hmm. I think the more separation I had from that was it wasn't groundbreaking. It was more ground establishing. Because Mm -hmm. the reason why a lot of people considered it successful was because a lot of the things we got guaranteed, like paid maternity leave, mental health resources, also for family planning. We have women that play up into their 40s, shorty. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we're now giving veteran players up to $60,000 in adoption, surrogacy, um, you know, uh, what is it? Egg fertilization and all that stuff. Those type of benefits. That, that's like the outside of the pay part. Like a lot of those things that we guaranteed in our CBA for our players are not guaranteed for women in most workplaces. So a lot of people are like, whoa, this is groundbreaking. I was like, hold up, y'all don't get paid maternally? Like, we understand the economic realities of our business. By the way, the economic realities is that our business is booming. It's trending upward. Mm -hmm. You look at the merchandising, Mm -hmm. you look at the streaming numbers, you Mm -hmm. look at just society out here canceling, well, not canceling, but calling out people that just call us out just because it's trendy to make fun of the WNBA. Like, that's Mm -hmm. all going away. Everything's moving in a positive direction. Our play on the court is the best of its kind. Like, no matter what you say, there's no better women's basketball league in the world. 144 women get to play in the WNBA. That's not a lot of people, one of the most competitive jobs. And so we were like, yo, we deliver with the competition. The finals have been great. Our numbers are going up. We need our business to keep that same energy. Like, we need a business strategy that builds off of that momentum and is not on autopilot. And so what we had to do is come with those facts. And it was not easy. Like, we're going up against the NBA. You know, we're sitting across from the NBA who are big brothers trying to negotiate this new deal. And so we had to know the facts better than them so that when they said we can't do this, I was like, well, we ran the numbers and this is what we can actually do. And so, like, I feel like that's an example of how much, you know, women, young people, you know, black people, however it is, our league is 80% black. We have to come that correct to get what we deserve. And Mm. that was a year and a half process and we got it and we got it. But what it took was recognizing, showing the numbers that, Hey, female sports, women in sports, shoot women period deserve investment. Because when you invest in that, you're, you're, and I would say, you don't know what you don't know. Like you're tapping into an audience that you probably haven't been catering to. And that could bring in more audience, which brings in more to your bottom line. Mm, I love that. And look, get your paper. First, middle and last. Okay, <laughs> You're calling out not only leadership, but your peers who are there right there with you with that collective bargaining. And, and I know that the relationship between team members, black, white, brown, whatever, is, is forged in a lot of ways. You know, you move together, you travel together, you build this very real bond. And I'm wondering, you know, as this 2020 season obviously looks different and 2020 is completely different, how, how do you see your team sort of supporting you and the Black community? And how do you sort of reach out to them and, and build allyship in a way that you guys can go to the table together, even if, you know, some people might have some alternate facts yeah. on that same team? Yeah. So like for me, the best team, you know, I think right now we're in such a solidarity moment, right? That like we Mm. sometimes forget that we need our team to also not look like us, right? Mm. And so having valuable opinions and perspectives, because like right now it's not just, you know, fighting for 
Black people or black the Black experience, we're fighting for our future. And that future is going to look so, so diverse. Like, for instance, part of my team is not only my family, and I mentioned my mentors, but like my agent is a young white Jewish woman who is a, you know, like, uh, I guess you can say like she's an entrepreneur, but also like she represents primarily Black women. Right. Mm -hmm. So like having someone that could provide perspectives, because there have been moments where there have been anti-Semitic remarks made and like in the middle of this injustice that was in uh, Houston and there was like sexual violence in Nigeria. There's so much ish going on and having people in real time that can make sure that you're not just tunnel vision, but also helping others along the way. You know, and I think when we have these conversations, we sometimes feel like, no, 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 like we should be front and center right now, which we absolutely certainly should. But like, if we can bring people along with us that deserve it, like that to me is like how I feel we should be like the energy we should be on. So that's been like the journey for me, making sure that I stay on point, not just for me, but also for everyone else and people that also don't look like me, but also deserve the spotlight as well. Mm. What does that future look like to you of sports, of basketball, now that we've invited these conversations, you know, on the court, on the field? So I'll give you one lens. It, it, it's what, through LeBron James' tweet. Like, it was funny. Like, in pandemic, when everything was slowing down and we were all, like, saluting the essential workers, all the people that are the real MVPs of society, this is when all this happened. And, you know, having a voice and working hard the years before, it put me in a moment where like now ESPN's calling on me to speak for black women or speak for black people or speak for young people. And I was like, whoa, like I didn't expect this and this just happened. And one of the things that happened was, you know, connecting. And I mentioned, you know, LeBron James earlier, more than a vote. And so I did this piece like on MSNBC or CNN, one of the, one of the news networks or something explaining why athletes are choosing to protest. And then like LeBron retweeted it, which was kind of cool. Kind of cool. And then he said, like, foot on the gas, sis. Right. And so I think that is the energy that we're on. It's like, keep our foot on the gas. Like, this is not something that is just of the moment. This is going to be of the future. Athletes are going to continue to use their platforms to advocate for things that matter to them. And right now, like it is and it should always be, you know, racial equity racial equality, but there's so many other things that we care about as well. So like even the years to come, you're going to see athletes continue to use their platform. Mm -hmm. So like as great as we have, uh, you know, individual figures, it's us sticking together collectively and making a decision that like we have to do something and putting pressure on the system and the people that benefit from us to also, you know, be the ones that create the change. Like that is the energy I think that's going to happen in the future. It won't happen in like the ways we're seeing it now consistently, but we're going to see it in different ways. And I'm glad because like, like stick to sports. What? Like, bye. You know? like, <laughs> I'm so tired. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think like collective action is it. Like I'm going to go collect some people right after this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining you. us. Your energy, your insight, your existence, like you said, is resistance. Thank you guys for having me. Go sports. Can't wait to see you at a game when we have fans. <laughs> This podcast is a Refinery29 original. It is produced by Chelsea Sanders, Rashad Isaac, and myself, Danielle Cadet. It's edited by Hanger Studios. My co-hosts today were Chelsea Sanders and Kathleen Newman-Bremang. Like what you heard and want some more? Head over to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts to catch up on all episodes. And don't forget to drop a review or leave a comment to let us know what you think. You can also find us where it all started 
on Instagram at r29unbothered. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, it's okay to go off, sis. <laughs>